why it's cold in here. I'll open this window. I'm freezing to death. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hello! Hello, my dear, how are you? I'm very good. Long time no talk! <laughs> and also was, no see, actually. And no see, I was, I was pulling a U, I was gallivanting around the globe. Oh, everyone should gallivant. Going here, going there. Well, just really two places. I went to two places. <laughs> I went to Italy and I went to Spain. Um, and uh, I went to Rome, Madrid, and Barcelona. I had never been to Rome before. Oh, had you been to other parts of Italy though? I, yeah, I've been, I was in Venice once. Uh, okay. I'd never been to Rome before. Rome was, ve- my friends were very divided about whether Rome was a good place to visit or not. The things I heard about, like the people are rude, the place is dirty. Someone told me it was just dirty, like there's just <laughs> free flowing dirt just flying through the air, settling uh, on every on everything. So uh, I thought that was an interesting critique. <laughs> um, I have been to Rome. Um, I feel like it's a city you pro- you have to at least go to. Well, what does that mean? Once. At least once. I mean, it's it's a it's a major city. You. You go to it, see if you like it. If you like it, then you keep returning. If you don't, you just say, well, I've been to Rome. It's been nice. Um, <laughs> this is the most neutral statement you could have possibly said. Uh, yeah, you know what it is? Let's, let's be honest. I've been to lots of places in Italy, and my favorite is actually Florence. Oh. Huh. So, you know, I have been to Rome. I thought it was a fine city. It's not a place that I am eager to revisit. But I really enjoyed Florence, and that's definitely a, a type of city I could see myself returning to many times. All right, let me talk about Rome. Uh, mm-hmm. I was there. I was. I was just did straight up touristing. Yeah, you know, I went to the Colosseum, went to the Vatican like three times. It's really? Yeah, it's it's pretty in there. It required multiple viewing. I mean, well, okay. <laughs> yes, it did because that mu- that yeah. Vatican Museum is like a maze. It's like it's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. All you want to do is see the Sistine Chapel, but they mm-hmm. want to show you all their shit beforehand. So <laughs> you are running around, and they have they have helpful signs like Sistine Chapel this way. But what they yeah. don't tell you is that in that direction is like an hour and a half worth of exhibits that yep. you have to force march through first before you see the Sistine Chapel, which while beautiful is not what you expect. Well, you know, it's crowd control. I guess, right? Because when you get to the Sistine Chapel, there's like hundreds of people in there, all with their necks craned forward. Look it uh, up. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was cool. what do you but mean it's not was... what you expect? The Sistine What's Chapel. What's that? What do you mean it was not what you expect? The Sistine Chapel? It's the room itself is smaller than I imagined. Mm-hmm. And the paintings on the ceiling, the famed paintings, while exquisite detail and beautiful are also smaller than I imagined. You know, it's like when you see the Mona Lisa. Yeah, it's like on a postage stamp. It's just small. Like, you know, it's yeah. like when you've seen it, you feel like it's poster size. And you well, get up you've there seen poster and size. You've seen well, it on posters. Even, That's why. I know, I know. But even just in the way they, they shoot it, it just feels like it's this massive picture. And yeah, you get to it and you're small. like, oh, it's like a postcard. It's, it's like on an 11 by 14 piece of paper. <laughs> 
okay. Uh, But let me tell you about Rome. It was beautiful. It was Mm -hmm. very beautiful. The thing about Rome's men, right? Because that was the study while I was there. Oh, yeah. It seems like there's two kind of men. Uh A bearded man over the age of 18 and children. That's it. Everyone has a beard. Like, Are you serious? Everyone. I didn't see a single adult Italian male without a beard. And after the first day, I was looking because I was like, no, this is wild. This, There's no way. <laughs> Every single man older than like 18, even some of the teenagers had beards. Like it's it's astounding. Like that is just their aesthetic and they are sticking the hell. So you, so you landed in the East Village, really? <laughs> It looks just like hipster <laughs> out of control. No, but like their beards did not look ironic or unintentionally <laughs> intentional or intentionally unintentional. Like they were really about the beards. They just, I guess you just become a man, you grow it, and that's the end of it. The place itself I found was a little conservative. I was staying on what is the gay street. I mean, being to New York and San Francisco and even London, you know, the idea of what a gay street is i guess i had a different idea of what a gay street would be than the gay street in rome the gay street in rome is um it's a short street it's like a short block of new york city mm-hmm. and there's two gay bars on it and then like one like gay novelty shop and two other restaurants and at night like because europe has like this street culture people are out on the street like whatever you really wouldn't know it was the gay street um i guess like the presence of the pope like tamps down on like all the all the so, like no public no public displays of affection Nowhere, nowhere in four days did I see any gay couples hold hands, kiss, or touch each other. When I went to Castle uh, Sant'Angelo, I saw two lesbians from Germany with one of their dads. Even they stayed a distance away from each other. I mean, also they were German, so they stayed a distance away from each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was kind of conservative, which was really different than when I went to Spain. Did you notice a lot of young women out that were non-tourists? A lot of young women out that, I mean, I didn't really look. Why? I just I couldn't remember that. I think in my in Italy I remember a lot of men, but I kept trying to remind myself if I actually connected with any Italian women who were not tourists, who were not sort of outside the country. I don't remember that happening. And in many other places when we were traveling, we'd run into lots of like girls or just like lots of women, but I didn't remember women sort of I'm not saying women are or like in the homes or that's not what I'm saying, but I just didn't remember feeling like I was connecting with them. But of course I'm obviously a tourist. And so I'm visiting tourist sites. So you're not really always going to find Italians there. I will say this. The difference between Rome and Madrid is that there were much younger people in Madrid. Now a part of Madrid I stayed in was like the equivalent of staying in the East village at its height. Mm. So there were just, and it was in the middle of a tapas festival. So there was, the streets were choked with Spaniards, Um, a lot of young people. And I didn't really see a lot of people, young people in Rome. And even at the tourist areas in Madrid, there was still a lot of young people. So I don't know what that is. I mean, maybe just being in Rome ages you. Maybe having <laughs> a beard, it's hard to tell how old you are. Uh, but that's it. Would you but return? to Yeah. Uh, to Rome? Um, to Rome. I'm, to see stuff. That's about it. That's what I've been up to. I've been running around Europe. What have you been up to? Not running around Europe. Um <laughs> No, actually, I think uh, I've been, um, I've actually been working, which is sad. Um, I know. And also doing a lot of processing and thinking because I'm on a board of an organization and we're, we're slated to do these like strategic plan, which means 
rethinking your values, who you are, where you want to go, like big picture stuff. Which oh, actually God. is kind of exhausting. I know. <laughs> I, I know. I was born in the middle of you talking about it. That sounds like <laughs> it's like a meeting from hell. No, thank you. <laughs> I was having brunch with some old friends of yours uh, mm. two weeks and, and mine two weeks ago. And we were reminiscing about our times when we all lived in New York City like 15 years ago. Uh, this is the old fogey part of the podcast. I've listened to some of the old podcasts and we have this moment in every podcast. So we might as well just title it uh, where we talk about how things are different now. You know, we were talking, we were looking through pictures because someone pulled out pictures and we're looking at pictures of all of us. So young, so beautiful, so poor, yet running around the city doing all sorts of stuff. And the question came up, like, how did we manage to see each other two to three times a week? And organize groups up to seven, eight of us to get together. Oh, uh, we had nothing current... else going on. Listen, <laughs> I mean, a few of us were a few of us were in school, and then another another couple of one of us were like starting out our careers and not necessarily fully committed yet. The level of responsibility was probably not that high. I have friends in my twenties now. Yeah, it's not that way. No one's doing that nowadays. If you want to get six, seven people together for a brunch, you got to have your calendar ready for like November, December, 2018. Are because you guys, maybe, maybe people are, so even younger people are not, are difficult to get in touch with now. Yes, Cause I'm assuming yes. it was more commitment. Well, I don't know. What are, what, are, what are young people filling their days with now? I don't just know. Just tooling around. I don't, I can't, say around. If it's, I can't say if it's everywhere, but I can say New York, the, the attitude is certainly different. Like People have shit to do. I sometimes get on doodle polls. It's like, oh, let's all meet for dinner. And you see the doodle poll and there's like eight people on it. And everyone, no one's free. Just like flat out, no one's free in the next two weeks. I, I continue to lament a New York that has passed away. Uh, <laughs> and I also and, lament the lameness of people now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe people are just not that committed to getting together. Maybe. <laughs> maybe we just had really kick-ass friends. Maybe that was it. The selection pool. Yeah. Also, the the thing that I call like the Madonna thing, where you can come to New York with a suitcase of clothes and 30 bucks in your pocket and somehow make it. Yeah. It's like nowadays you have to have your shit shipped from Michigan or Indiana, where the <laughs> fuck you're coming from, because it's always people from outside the city coming with $5,000 in their savings account for first, last, and security. And you have already have to have the job set up before you get here. I, I don't know how anyone washes up on the shores of New York anymore. No one's washing up on the shores of anywhere anymore. That's my sense of it. I think people are like doing hardcore planning. <laughs> you have to. I mean, what, how do migrations work anymore? Hey, my own parents. When my parents snuck into the country from Canada, yes, that's right. They snuck in. When my parents <laughs> snuck in from Jamaica via Canada, like my dad had like a couple of resumes and a suitcase and like some money. And, they, you know, he had a kid and a wife and like somehow they made that work. And here I am like having a podcast where I shoot the shit every other week. I, I don't know. Like I, I don't, I don't, I can imagine this happening anymore. Okay. All right. Let's jump into some topics. Huh? So uh, why don't you start? By the time you all hear this, we will still be a couple weeks out from the Harvey Weinstein. Um, is this Dean or Stein? Who cares? Let's call him whatever we want. Um, Harvey Weinstein's, Sexual harassment debacle. Extravaganza. (laughs) (laughs) A lot. It's a lot. But, of course, with the publishing of the New York Times article about Harvey Weinstein and then another piece in The New Yorker 
and then subsequent actresses coming out and telling their Weinstein story, which involves forced massages, forced looking at him while he showers. He seems to have a pet project for that. Forcing himself to perform oral sex on women um, without their consent, buying off assistance and various things. It also seems to just have snowballed with others. Now we have, there's a photographer, I think recently, who has finally been banned, but we've known that he was raping models for years because I remember reading about that five years ago. And then, and then apparently there's another producer who, I think the LA Times published an article with like maybe 35 women. And after that article came out, about a hundred and something plus women came out telling stories about this producer. I started wondering, I didn't really explicitly want to talk about Harvey per se or the particulars of that case, but I just started looking around. I'm like, well, this is a culture. This is a culture issue. Like this is a this is like a toxic male culture issue. That's where I'm landing on this because I see people say, "Oh, you know, we've got to change things. Have hopefully things change as a result of this." And the the assumption is that you get rid of one Harvey and then things will shift. And I'm like, well, this can't be. It can't be as simple as that because there were whole systems and network that made Harvey possible for thirty plus years. And all these other men, because what underpins everything that's come up is that everyone has known about these men and they have been allowed to wreak havoc on people's lives. The next question for me, and this is what I wanted to ponder, is if this is some dark, deep element of masculinity that needs to be exposed and then publicly tackled similar to the feminist movement. You know, the feminist movement acknowledged that women's um, sphere was singularly in the home always. And so there was this attempt to sort of bring women into the public sphere and talk of, and sort of talk about the underpinning of culture and why women were trapped in the home, why women's work weren't valued. And it sort of raised questions, questions about gender and all of those issues, which we tackled last week when we talked about feminism. So I'm asking, is it possible for us to have a men's movement that... Um, reconceives of masculinity in a way that gets at some of the darker elements in it and have a revolution of sorts. I want to head off at the pass any comparison between feminism and the sort of men's movement that you're talking about. I think I understand what you're talking about, but can you clarify a little bit? Okay, well, let me just say, okay, you can interpret feminism in many ways, and it's very complex and very nuanced. But one of and my annoying how omni word that is, but anyway, that is so <laughs> it holds so many things. But one of my one of the my, one of my takeaways from fe- the feminist movement was that it really allowed women to become to be conceived publicly beyond their their simple roles as extensions of men, wife, mm-hmm. mother. And in some ways, it was really an attempt to capture the public space, the public sphere, work. What is she doing outside the home? So when you talk about men in the public sphere, men don't have that struggle because men own the public. So what what are you getting at? For women, that was the charge for the feminist movement was to allow women to capture the public sphere. What I'm thinking is I feel like men have to have a movement that allows them to capture the very opposite sphere which is the private space, which is who are they as people? Who are they as individuals separate from their role as business leaders or any of those spaces? Because until men are able to kind of live with the complexities of their feelings, 
I just feel like these kinds of things are going to continue to happen. Yes, because they are. their relations with the world is entirely built around dominance, which is so, why this exploitation was allowed to happen. How can men have a period in time where they capture their interactions with themselves, with the world, with each other, with women outside of a dominance play, outside of power plays? That's what I'm trying to get at. In some ways, you're being very compassionate and that you want to, there's, there's a humanization of men that you want to occur because well, the, sure. last, the stories that we're hearing about men are really monstrous stories of assault and domination and like cruelty. The reason why I wanted you to sort of just really spell out what you're saying, because I think there is a, there's a real difference, like you said, between the feminist movement and the movement of men that you are describing. Now, there is a meninist movement, which exists in opposition to the feminist movement. And I know that's not what you're talking about, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. So I agree with you. And this is, this is the landscape. So men have created an entire environment where they have defined women in these roles and then place themselves on the pecking order higher than the women. So as feminism in its many tentacled way, right? As feminism exploded and was more about bringing women into the public sphere and more about women um, challenging the roles that they have been given, it pushes them in this area with men. Let's not say equal to men, but an area with men. Now, the problems that occur from that is that men's whole identity is in opposition to what women are. I agree with you is that if men could somehow define their maleness outside of themes of domination and outside of themes of in relation to what women are or do, then I think that would be really very helpful. I'm not certain how we spark something like that because I think that's the problem when you um, are the people in power. It's the same thing that we see with white people versus black people, with straight people versus gay people. It's really hard to take yourself out and try and redefine who you are when the entire world is defined by the things that you aren't. Like men aren't women, right? And if women are subservient and women are in the domestic sphere, the fact that I'm a man means I'm not those things. You know, if you think white versus black, then, you know, white people can say like, you know, I'm not black, which means I have access or I don't have these issues or I don't have those issues. It's always from that stance. I think men are going to have to find out what maleness means. I mean, good luck with that. But how do you connect that to the Weinstein thing? Like how did you arrive there from Weinstein? If you're allowed to do something like that for years upon years upon years and other men know you're doing it, and you're not being called out, then the question I have to ask is, is this a part of your culture? Is this a part of male culture? It is currently. I mean, that's what rape culture is all about. Like, yes, that's what it's about. You know, the fact that every every man up until George H.W. Bush now is like having to come out and apologize for things that they did, which things that I'm sure they never really thought about. George H.W. Bush had to apologize because Either back in back in the day, like he may have patted the rear ends of a couple of women as he was as he was speaking to them. I can see how that was just like an old world affectation coming from like a male dominated mid century, and I'm sure he didn't mean anything necessarily sexual or aggressive about it. However, as far as rape culture is concerned, it's like he didn't really think about these women as people who maybe didn't want their body parts touched. It was just okay to tap women on the ass. 
this is why I'm advocating for a movement of sort, right? Because if the very definition of your existence is that women are objects for you to touch, do anything you want with, then necessarily you're going to have Weinsteins or people who are along that range. My challenge is that we have to have a definition that men embrace of themselves where dominance of women is not a part of that definition or dominance of the sphere is not a part of that definition. Hmm. So how do we go about building that then? I, I agree. I think that'd be great, but I just don't know how we go about I mean, first, my thing is this is the problem with dominance in culture in the first place. Is that how do you begin to define yourself outside the dominance if that's what if that's what you are? You start from scratch. Well, first of all, I think we we have. I think this is a teachable moment, though. I think when you look at what's happening with Harvey and with any of the things that are happened that have happened since, where people are telling their stories and women are telling their stories and women are saying "Me too" and all of those campaigns where people are sort of acknowledging that sexual harassment and rape culture exists, then this is what I mean. Because obviously, where the the conversation is sort of dominated by women expressing what's happened to them. But then the next part of it is like, who, who, where are the men in this conversation? Where are, if, if women are saying me too, what in, what in response should men say? And, and for the men who are like, oh my God, I'm so surprised this is happening. And people who were shocked at seeing, cause you know, a couple of weeks ago, people were putting on Facebook, you know, me too's to acknowledge that they had been sexually assaulted in some way. And um, the reaction by some men were like, oh my God, I'm surprised. It's shocking. See, when now you I don't s- find that helpful. Well, it's not, well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Because the question is if, if there is like a sea of me too's on your Facebook timeline, that denotes a cultural problem. Mm-hmm. So how is it that you are unaware of this cultural problem? What is your role in propagating this cultural problem? Like how, wh- how is that playing out for men? That's why they can look at a list of me twos and be like, I'm shocked by this because the patriarchy, like male dominance says that they don't have to attend to these things. It's the same thing with white supremacy. Like when you talk about, like when you as a black woman of a certain age says that in your lifetime, you have experienced discrimination and racism, you will you will have white people near you going like, wait, what? Now, it's nonsensical that you can get through so many decades as a black person and not experience racism, yet somehow that will still be surprising to white people. It's the same kind of thing because when the culture is built for you, by you, then you can safely ignore anything that challenges the culture, which you're right. This is a deep problem in our culture that men are on top, and women are objects, and you can do whatever you want. That's the only way that we arrive at these places. I mean, Harvey Weinstein has assaulted how many women? And we all knew about it. I mean, Trisha, you knew about it. I knew about it. And we're not even in the business. Well, this is why I'm saying, with like, because people are saying, oh, well, hopefully things will change. And it feels like a passive way to say, hopefully things will change. Extremely. That's thoughts and prayers. Yeah, I mean, it's very thoughts and prayers because really what it tells me is that there's work that has to be done. But there's really, I mean, obviously beyond just 
I mean, there's so many layers to this because within the culture is the assumption that women are um, up for grabs, really. But beyond that also is the assumption that humans are up for grabs within the Hollywood sort of like model, right? Is that you should be able to, I should be able to call you at 4 a.m. in the morning and you need to jump out of your bed and be at my beck and call. Like in a, in a world where sort of power relations is so explicit, exploitation of the powerless is inevitable. And one aspect of that exploitation, I believe, is the sexual. So what do, what do we do? Like you're, you're saying that men need to rediscover themselves or discover themselves. They need, to, they need to define themselves outside of domination. Because otherwise, this won't change. You know, in preparation for this conversation, I was digging around the internet because I'm vaguely aware of like there's like these men men's retreats that you mm-hmm. can go on and it's like all men and there's several different types like some are organized around religion or sexuality or bowling i found um <laughs> but there tend to be a couple of types and some of them are where you go away and you talk about it's like the celebration of maleness you know you you've heard the ones where a bunch of men go into the woods and they strip naked and paint each other and they hit drums and they like emote or scream at the sky. And so like a primal scream sort of, it's very sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, like it seems to me that the space that they're trying to create there is like to connect men to their feelings and to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the other kind of ones, which um, I'm sorry to say, like some, most of the religious ones I looked at are like this, where you go away and you talk about being a man as being a father and about being the head of your household and about being a good husband and things that are in definition to other that there are and things that are in reference to other people and your relationship to them. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what you're suggesting, and just because I know you, the former is more valuable than the latter. The latter is going to lead you to the same place that we already already are. a dominance play. It's, it's already, because I mean, we're already talking about you being the head of your household and how you have to step up and how yep. you have to do X, Y, and Z. And then that falls on you, yeah. which is going to create some of the same behaviors, tropes, um, and situations that we're already not enjoying in culture. Now, the former is, I think, a step too far for us as a culture. I think understanding our maleness and understanding who men are outside of um, acquisition and sexual power and energy. Um, I, it just seems like a lot. I, I lo- and aggression. I love the idea because I'm hippy dippy. I love the idea, but I, I just don't see how we get there. I think what's going to happen with the Harvey Weinstein thing, you know, everyone's like, oh, this is a culture breaking moment. I'm not so sure. I thought we've had culture breaking moments in the last three years and mm-hmm. culture really didn't break. It just sort of was like ended up being okay and allowing things to happen. So Weinstein now is, and other men are being gone after. Is this what changes the industry? Are are we ready as a public to have our entertainment delivered to us differently? Because that's always what this comes down to, right? The reason why these people are able, the reason why these people are able to act this way, and the reason why we allow them to act this way is because they deliver something to us which we enjoy. Since the days of like Marilyn Monroe and like the studio system back in the day, everyone has known that this is how Hollywood has run. 
but we enjoy the, the products that Hollywood gives to us. So we look the other way. Like I said, I mean, Terry Richardson, Harvey Weinstein, Brian Singer, everyone already knew about these men. Everybody knew what they were doing. And like I said, people who were not in the industry knew what they were doing. But we're just like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, this is something that goes on and yada, yada, yada. Well, I mean, I guess in some ways, first of all, on a, on a sort of very localized level, the industry itself has, the industry has to check itself, right? It has to punish people why for, poor, for poor why behavior within its industry. It doesn't. It, it hasn't. Wait, because the story... The Oscars, has, Casey Affleck. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't punish itself because the, there's a sort of self-regulation that has to happen in the industry. So it doesn't do that through its award system. It doesn't do it through any of this kind of informal um, reward mechanism that is at play, right? Because you wouldn't be giving a horrible teacher teacher of the year, you know, because in some ways the industry separates who the person is from their product right? That's really one of the, the markers of that industry, which is why they can continue to have this conversation about whether Roman Polanski is a, Roman Polanski is a great artist or not, even though he's a rapist. You know, like they, they, they seem to really, really buy into the idea of holding those two things together, which I think sets them up because then you have the ability to be a really repugnant person. But if you create a good product, somehow or another, I'm supposed to separate those two things. And that, that, that's part of the reason I think there's so much license for people to be really horrific persons um, and still be able to put out a movie that makes millions of dollars and people go, oh, that's all right. So you work with him next week. Um, (laughs) So there's obviously that happening. But for me, the issue is that I just want to know where the cultural moment needs need to go. How do we make this have a real impact beyond like locking up a few Harveys? I really wish I knew. It's like, how do you challenge white supremacy or heteronormativity? You have to be willing to take down the institutions that are cherished by us. Can you or at fight least the by- stories we tell ourselves about the institutions. Sure. That at least has to be the start. Can you fight white supremacy without taking on the justice system? I mean, what would be the point? Can you fight heteronormativity without taking on the, the church? Like, not really. Well, actually, I'm curious, but as a gay man, like, how does this play out in in sort of gay world? Because I'm talking about men. I'm talking about masculinity. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to ask you. So when the whole hashtag Me Too thing was happening, which was a movement created by a black woman 10 years ago, when that broke out, a lot of men were posting Me Too as well. And then people were like, oh, this is really about women and men versus women. And then the pushback to that was, actually, this is about men and aggressive, toxic masculinity, and their targets, the gender of their targets doesn't matter. What do you think? Oh, I mean, yes, toxic masculinity, men are also its victims, right? The yes. perpetrators, I think, of are, 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 one of, are one of the victims because you have inherited or you buy into an idea that then leads you to basically become um, a subjugator of others. So it's damaging to you as well. I mean, it's a little bit like the, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's a little bit like the Martin Luther King thing where Martin Luther King says that white people are damaged by racism as well, right? Of course, yeah. Because your inhumanity to man in some ways makes you mm-hmm. humane. So on some level, I think that that's what um, toxic masculinity hinders men and it hinders their own development. 
And that's that's really the core part of, that I'm signaling is that I want men to understand that they are damaging obvious victims, but they are also crafting a narrative about themselves that means that they're always going to be creating and wreaking havoc wherever they go. So I can I can embrace the idea that men, some men are also victims if they don't fall into the the, the power dynamics that is being propagated by this hierarchy. I could believe that quote unquote weaker men can be abused in that system too. Um, I didn't. I wouldn't appreciate men taking over the Me Too hashtag because I think ex- at the moment it was explicitly about women owning these their experiences and the fact that some of them um, weren't even allowed to speak about what happened and they've been silenced in that way. So I, I mean, I wouldn't be like a man like pushing up in the space. I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> nurture that, but I can understand why um, men who sort of fall out of line in terms of this power hierarchy would want to say, listen, this is happening to us too. But if that's really happening, then the question for me is like with other women, when women, when things are happening with women, women turn and try to talk to each other. We try to create a space of safety and we try to change structures. So my question is when are men going to recognize that this masculine dance is toxic and damaging to them and try to attack it at its foundation as well. When it is actually toxic and damaging to them. It's only toxic and damaging to them when occasionally they get caught. I want to end this on a positive note. I think change can come. I mean, naming names for certain, Mm -hmm. getting all these people out of here, at least shaming them, right? And giving power to the people they've taken power away from by punishing them. But also I think when it comes to like Hollywood agents and producers, that we can create a culture of positivity around these issues. People need to get a reputation of being really great to work with women. Really, really great. Putting women in key business positions in your organization to to make sure that these sorts of things don't come up. Being the head of a studio and really working with your human resources department to define what kind of behavior is inappropriate and then making sure that there are steps taken when that behavior occurs. And I not think in women this way, who've internalized misogyny so that you actually just replicate the exact same system again. Because exactly. that's another thing. Sometimes I think if you, another woman will make it better, but not if that woman goes into that position also yeah. believing that women are up for grabs. Yeah, exactly. Just any woman won't do. Yep. I think if you've got people who are progressive, that's one way to change Hollywood or any industry, because then you have a reputation. For instance, the young man who is in Stranger Things and in It, and he dumped his agent because it came out that that guy had assaulted or touched another actor who was in something that I can't remember right now. And, you know, he's going to have to find another agent, that kid. So if someone out there can work with work with the the young actor community and their parents and be like, I'm a safe person and this is why, and this is what I believe, it will shift in that direction. I mean, we can starve out some of these misogynistic assholes. Yeah, I mean, I think- And hit them where it hurts. Yeah, we have to punish them. Like we can't just, can't, we can't just embrace the people who let it happen. Like they are movie. If you know this person's doing this, you got to boycott their movie. You got to yeah. like really call people to task if they're cra- it's crafting a space. Yeah. It's twofold. It's that. It's absolutely punishing people when it comes out and shaming them and ruining their careers. And also it's creating alternate spaces where we're really trying to work to make this better actively, like creating a haven 
for actors to come and be like, okay, I feel like I'm being respected as far as I'm not being sexually assaulted. Um, I'm not expected to trade sex for parts or whatever. So what I want to talk about is brief, but I wanted to bring it up and see what you thought about this. When I was over in Spain, I spent some time in Barcelona, which is the capital of an area of Spain known as Catalonia. And there is some turmoil in that part of the world at this time. So on October 1st, uh, the Catalonians had voted for independence from Spain. Now, Catalonia is a semi-autonomous region of Spain, the northeast part like I mentioned, it's near the mountains and it's Barcelona is. They have their own language, their own culture, their own history, and they have been allowed to be semi-autonomous from Spain, which means that they have their own government. It's still part of Spain, but they have like a president of Catalonia. And they, like I said, have been semi-autonomous since Franco uh, died in 75. It's a very rich part of Spain. There's a lot of tourism in that part of Spain. They decided that they were going to declare independence. So on October 1st, they had a vote in a legal vote, illegal by the laws of Spain. And they decided some 90% of the people voted for independence. Now, less than 40% of eligible voters voted, mm-hmm. but it came up as independence. The president of Catalonia announced that Catalonia would be independent, but then in his next breath said that he was going to talk to Spain to see if he could, he was going to talk to Madrid to see if they could work something out. There were riots. 350,000 people took to the streets of Barcelona um, and to which Madrid had a very violent response and hundreds of people were wounded in a confrontation. I, I just want to point out, sidebar, 350,000 people is a lot of freaking people. Yeah. For, for reference, quarter of a million showed up to the March of Washington back hmm. in the civil rights era. And I think it's something like half a million for the Women's March on Washington. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of which people. Which is a lot of people, yeah. But yeah, this, this is a, a giant so amount of people. This is a big issue. This is a very big issue for the Catalonians. So what's happening now? Madrid has taken over Catalonia and has moved into the region and as far as has removed some of their autonomy. And the independence question is still in the air. This is my question. It seems in this current era, there's a lot of cachet in regions and nations splitting up, leaving the countries, declaring independence. I mean, we see this happen in our country with Texas and California about two or three times a generation. There's always some talk about, oh, uh, breaking off, oh, we can do our own thing. I grew up in New York, Long Island, sort of like every 15 to 20 years, there'll be some article written about how Long Island should separate from the rest of New York and be its own state. You know, we all know what happened with um, Brexit with Mm -hmm. the UK leaving the EU, which is slightly different. It's part of what I'm talking about here. And then also Scotland, with Scotland's referendum about leaving the UK. I guess my question and what I want to throw out there is, what is to be gained by declaring independence in this global economy and cultural situation that we have on the planet Earth in the 21st century? Are these gains really about economics and culture? Or is it about psychology of the inhabitants? Is it that people are so unwilling to join together across whether it be culture or color or religion or dialect? The thought is, uh, well, let's only deal with our own people. Because it seems to me in our day and age, like this would not be, this would not be an advantage to Catalonia to split off and be their own country. The EU has already said they would not be part of the EU, which means that they would have to ne- negotiate all their trade agreements with the EU and with their biggest trading partner, which would be Spain. And I, I can't really understand where the plus is. Now, I'm not 
I know you are confused, but I'm not uh, an, an economist, so I don't know all of the ins and outs of it. But I just wonder what you think. Like, why does this come up so often in our regions? Like, why are, why are Texans always rattling their sabers every now and then? Why does California always have an eye towards independence? Do you think it's a psychological thing? Like, I think it's psychological for sure. But I, I mean, but I also think it's practical, right? I mean, in what way? The first time I actually, listen, it comes up often and I never think about it. I'm always like, whatever. But the last time it came up was immediately after the last election. And California was like, let's, let's just go our own way. <laughs> and for out. the first time, I understood. I was like, you're damn right. I mean, I think what happens is, you know, I think we have to admit that while it makes a lot of sense to combine together regions, nation states that probably make more sense in kind of this global, in this global landscape that we have, it probably makes a lot of sense to have a powerful singular Spain. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't real and I think defining characteristics within Spain that people hold on to. Mm -hmm. And similarly in California, like, I mean, yes, it doesn't make any practical sense why California, we're going to be our own country. What are we doing with defense? What are we going to do about like all of the things that, you know, all the real practical concerns? how, How does that even play out? Just because we have sort of moved towards this kind of natural consensus building doesn't necessarily mean that real differences don't exist, I think. And so what I really see this as is a tension between how do you maintain some sort of internal independence states' rights have if if you must, if we must, and the federal government. I mean, listen, for us, it's always been really... My question is, why is that necessary? That's my question to you. Again, the question, for example, you said 91% of the people who voted, voted for Something independence, like right? Yeah. Something You're like 90. that. But only 40% yeah. of the people voted, You're right? Yeah. So this is, I mean, even just the practical nature of that, right? Those 91% of people, they, they have a real need. They have a real need to have their experiences acknowledged in some way to sort of chart their own course. But yet at the same time, it's only 40% of the people that voted. I feel the same thing happens here in the US. I feel like because we don't have 100% or at least a high degree of people voting in our elections and, and, and having people's voices really legitimately being heard, that people can feel a real tension between this sort of like fa- false unity that gets presented. So there's like a false picture of the United States moving in one singular direction. And it really belies that like different states are doing very different things. And people want that to be acknowledged in some way. They want to acknowledge that there are real differences. The real differences between California, the real differences between Texas. We're really, really different from Pittsburgh, for gosh sakes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And usually it has to do with the fact that maybe in some ways, a lot of these states that really sort of rear their head and want independence end up sort of holding the bag for a lot of Let's just call them sloppy states that aren't bringing up the rear. I am not certain I know what the practical end game is. For... I mean, I don't. Th- what do you, I mean, what even the for the Catalonia situation? Like, how does that even work out? Like, I've I've been thinking about it too, but maybe it's because our visions. Uh, we've been living in too um, defined a world for for much of our existence. You have to remember that many new nations came of age. 
in the 20th as we century. were getting younger in the 20th century. So yes. there's always been that happen. That uh, that's all the 20th happened. century is not the 21st century. I mean, but, I I am I am morbidly curious what it would look like for a region of a Western country to split off and decide that it was going to be its own thing. I would be interested in what that looks like because I have all the same questions you do, but I don't think it's necessarily a net positive for the global community, which is the way that you have to think in the 21st century. You don't have to, to, but that's to your detriment. Maybe what you have, maybe what you have is people really wanting, wanting to pursue a real independence, a real, um, a real, a real pushback from this kind of force uniformity of ideas because uh, you know listen as great as the eu has been for some it's been real detrimental for identity within certain countries about who they are who their people are what they're about it all forces you on like this sort of like eu main group think kind of way that's limited thinking it's not limited i'm not european i'm not european but let me tell you something Having been to European countries, pre I'm not certain. Post. Well, well, pre, I don't remember. I have been pre, to European I countries have. pre, but Let I was a child. You, I really enjoyed my dollar, five, <laughs> five francs to the dollar. <laughs> to my dollar. <laughs> uh, yeah, 700 million liras to your dollar. Yes. I mean, I think you don't have to barrel lira in order to buy bread. I don't remember what Europe was like. I was a child in Europe yes. before the EU. It's not I'm that not, long ago. Is, is French? Um, the EU is the European fairly, Union. Yeah, the European Union. Ninety-nine is when the euro was adopted, but the European Union itself, as an organization, existed prior to that for a while. So exactly. The, so the, yeah. it's, the the adopting of the uniform currency was a big step. Yeah, that was eight, 18 years ago. This but is you my were point. old this enough. This, yeah, but I don't – no, no, but I was there. I was in UK and France when I was 10. I was mm. there for a while, and I, I don't really remember it that well. I remember what toys were available because that's what my focus was when I was 10 years old. <laughs> I wasn't concerned about, like, you know, geopolitics and the economic whatever, whatever. I just – I was like, oh, they have Inspector Gadget toys over here. We don't have them yet. Like, that was <laughs> what it was. Quick story. I went to France when I was young. And uh, we, I don't know, my parents were like, oh, why don't you guys go play on the street? Because that was a thing that my parents were doing when they went to a foreign country. They're like, oh, why don't you guys just run out in the streets of Paris and play? Okay, sure. So we were running out and we saw an ice cream man. So we ran up to get ice cream. And the guy indicated to us that he had vanilla and chocolate. So I was like, I'll have vanilla. So he gives me the vanilla and I, I taste it. And I'm like, sir, this isn't vanilla. It's French vanilla. And then I was like... Oh, and scene. Okay, so. (laughs) And this is the shit we get with the EU. You're you're suggesting, okay, so I'm going to work my story into my my argument just so it isn't a complete sidebar. What I'm saying is that like culture isn't lost by people deciding they want to be part of something larger than, than their national scope. I think that idea I'm sorry. I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. It's it sounds fear mongering. Like, oh, if we join together in this way, we're going to lose our identity. Really? I mean, our well, Germans. It depends on how that. It depends on how that identity is defined. Depends on how it's defined. If the identity is defined by the fact that I don't have a forty-hour work week, you do lose a big part of that. I mean, not everybody. Not everybody is like moving towards German efficiency and finding that appealing. 
I think our tendency is always to focus on material good. I, I'm always like leery of of just deciding the value of a thing purely from a material basis. And of course, if you joining the EU makes a lot of sense on a on a purely material basis, right? And a purely sort of militaristic fund, it obviously but does. It, it, but what I mean, ends up happening is you end up like forward. It what? moves our entire history forward, like or something forward like or just moving. Just it moves it. us. It okay, fine. You're right because progress is an illusion, right? So, yep. it moves us somewhere yep. new, right? Yep. Is the new better? I'm, is the new? Is, what, not, what is lost in the new? What is gained in the new? Those are tensions. The new is responding to the current environment. So but the EU is responding to the needs of the nations in it. It's responding to the way the rest of the world, be, us, China, India, is developing. It's sure. it's moving to compete that into motion a long time ago. And maybe some people don't want to participate in that game. Fair enough, I guess. Fair enough. I mean, that's the tension. I'm All I'm saying is there's a natural tension. There's always a natural tension between this illusion of progress and what people have, have to suss out what they're losing and gaining. Because I think personally, listen, I can give you a perfect perfect example, right? People can say the same thing in within like within the US, within like let's take a personal situation where people say, Well, you know what? The school system sucks. Let's pull you all together. Let's pull all these school systems into this one thing so it'll be more efficient. Sure, on a certain level, there's there's it makes a logical sense, but then you went once you realize that school systems are are made up of people with separate histories, separate um, capabilities. You know, are your students? You know, are you were your students prepared? You're to defining Common Core. Logic? This is the tension around Common Core. Exactly right. This is the thing, right? Because yes, there's a value to sort of like a universal pitch. Always right. We're all going to be on the same. Well, it's certainly easier. Certainly, right? But then the question is, how am I going to work to b- to bring you up to speed? Which were the tensions with the EU? How are you bringing Greece up to speed? How are you bringing all these other countries up to speed? And who's gonna who's gonna carry the weight of that? Who's gonna fall falter if things go badly? These are the things that happens when that push, right? In that push, mm-hmm. you usually are pushing towards this space of like conformity and uniformity without recognizing that not everyone comes to the table with the same stuff, the same histories, the same preparation, the same skill set, all of that. And some people will get lost in the fray and that's the tension for people. So for Catalonia, their history is extremely important. A lot of people died. I, I, I'm led to believe I was reading a little bit briefly on it online just to try to understand it. But there's always that case. And I just think that what ends up happening is that when you sort of move towards this kind of like uniform government or uniform experience, the individual tentacles of a thing gets lost. There is a part of your culture that does get lost. And you just have to ask yourself whether it's worth it. In the sweep towards moving towards this big, shiny ball over here, we can sort of miss elements of people's histories and people's history. And I think that's the tension that's going on for Catalan. I mean, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying it. we need to explore it. It's obviously valuable enough. People went to the polls. They risk harm to their personhood for it. There's some real value there. Why should that... And I don't want to take that away. Obviously, people... That took was 350,000 people yes. took to the streets. It was important enough for them to be like, nope, this is what 
I want. This is what I want for me. I want for my children, et cetera. I don't want to take that away from them. I'm not Catalan. I don't understand the tensions yeah. that exist there. Uh, but clearly, 350,000 people do, and they feel strongly about it. And I, I want to respect that. But I guess the country doesn't know what, how to respect that. But also what I'm reacting to is that, I mean, much like the fear that the president has been able to whip up in this country about people who are different and being just divisive on these topics, it makes me wonder if this is a, a real thing. Not that if the Catalan need for independence is a real thing, but what does that look like? I just don't feel like that is being practically explored, that this is an emotional reaction to history as opposed to a thought out reaction to history. Um, now, most reactions to history are emotional. The French Revolution, yeah. for instance. But sometimes the reaction to history can be a practical one. It can be thought out. There can be some sort of buttress there where people are working towards an end to make sure they take care of their people. That's sort of like the cockeyed approach that the Americans took in their revolution. They weren't really interested in taking care of people, but themselves and each other. And they were successful in doing that. And that required forethought. And they understood what it would take to run their country. Now, the 18th century is really different from the 21st. And like I said, full power and faith. They didn't understand it. If you if you read if you read some of the early writings of people after the American Revolution, they were they were it was a hope and a prayer really. In when you're casting your eyes back, it looks like it comes together, but it was still unknown. And so I think the same thing can be said. Early here. parts of the revolution, it was all they were hoping that would. But near the end, when it looked like it was going to happen, believe you me, those people met in rooms and they figured out what was going on and how the new government was going to look like. The yeah, they did. Began. They did, but they didn't know how it was going to stay together. Because even King George thought that the U.S. would come back. Yes, people can plan and they can sort through, and they. But no one knows. No one knows that the U.S. was going to last for over two hundred years. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a given. Well, it's still not. I mean, we're we're basically wrapping up nowadays, so. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think sometimes we can put a lot of, like, stock and we can flatten out history mm-hmm. to make it seem like the knowns were known. And that's never the case. And so, yes, there's a moment in my mind where I look at the Catalan situation. I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. How are you going to exist separate from Spain? What are you going to do with your, about your defenses? What are you going to do about that? But you never know. I mean, it's not. It's unknown. It is unknown. Maybe maybe they don't want to be annexed with Spain. Maybe they want to be annexed with something else. I don't know. I just, I mean, yes, maybe you're locked in because of where you are location-wise. I mean, you could say the same thing about Eastern Europe, for God's sake. Some of those countries are so damn tiny. <laughs> like, yeah. but, they're, but, but it's important for them to have self-identity and self-determination, right? It's important enough. There's like a personal... There's a personal stake in their no, own ethnic histories. So, you know, I just don't know. I mean, you're right. If I look at the sweep of it, I'm like, who who wants to go up against Spain? But, wants, but you know, if, if they if the struggle is important enough, you're willing to undertake it. Uh, I do wanna I do wanna say that yet again, I am mm-hmm. ignorant of the continent of Africa's struggle with mm-hmm. the shifting lines between the countries and how countries have dissolved and gotten together and renamed themselves, et cetera. I'm sure some of the answers, some of the questions that I've asked um, have played out in history. It's oh, just exactly. my own, They have, they have, and you ignorance. know it. Yeah, my own ignorance of African history has put a veil between me and those answers. But, you, but um, you're not ignorant of Western history and Western history has played out that way. 
you know what I mean? The Greeks, the Romans. I mean, all of those oh, tensions. God, but that was so long ago. Like, mean, that's I back know. when nations, that's back when city-states made sense. Like, you <laughs> could, like, that was a unit by which, that, by, that was a unit that moving, worked. A model where city-states won't make sense? I mean, it feels to me as if city-states might actually have a comeback. Oh, God. Okay. The, <laughs> know, that's, that's where we end. They right? won't. They <laughs> won't. Well, not if everyone is- I would is love a- to see that happen. Our, yeah, our, it's hard our to society, organize it, right? Our society <laughs> is no longer organized that. We just- It's not going to happen. I mean, it'd have to be something new, like a city-state, some well, other way- all right, so let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, or experience. Uh, also read. I don't know, I left that out weirdly tonight. <laughs> so, Trisha, what are you seeing, hearing, reading, or experiencing that you think other people should? I saw two things, which I thought were really interesting. One of them I saw with my sister. She, you know, She's always trying to find interesting documentaries, and somebody recommended that we watch it. And so I, in line with our topic around ma- masculinity, I think it's great. It's called The Mask You Live In. The and what? It's a doc- the Mask You Live In. And it follows boys and young men as they struggle to stay true to themselves while negotiating America's narrow definition of masculinity. But it's part of this thing called the Representation Project, which really is an attempt to deal with toxic masculinity. It's a great documentary. It was was like maybe, um, it was really fast, went through it pretty quickly. I think it was like maybe 90 minutes. And it basically just looked at the messages that men and boys received about how they should do masculinity. And how doing it remained challenging and perplexing and painful for them. And then the other thing I saw was um, on a flight, I'm looking around, I would never have searched this book, this thing out on my own, but I was on a flight and I wanted to watch a small documentary and this one popped up and I was like, yeah, this is interesting. It's called The Witness. When I say the name Kitty Genovese, you know that name. Yes. Kitty Genovese, Genovese, right? was a young woman in New York City. I believe in the 70s or 80s, who was assaulted. And the as the tale goes, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people in the apartment building uh, watched from the window as she was assaulted and no one did anything to help. Although I now understand she, that that is not entirely accurate, but that's the it's gist. Not, that's, that's, it's, that's entirely the case. And my um, access to Kitty is through psychology books. She's yes. very much a big part the of the psychology what is it? What's the effect that it, it's been? The observer the, effect, which the is the number, as the number of people increase who are witnessing something, the chance that any individual one of them will intervene will decrease. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this is um, there was a documentary. The documentary is called The Witness, and it's basically about Bill Genovese, which is Kitty's brother, taking it upon himself to explore her death and the 38 witnesses who supposedly watched her die over the course of 35 minutes. Jesus Christ, just go to therapy, Bill. God damn. I know. It actually, that is actually, it's really fascinating actually because, you know, Bill, I'm not giving much away by saying that Bill, as a result of the way his sister died, it changed him forever because it, I mean, it made him think about the world in a certain way. So he ran off to Vietnam, lost both his legs, and then came back. And just it's, his orientation to the world was really fundamentally changed by believing that 38 people watched his sister get killed and did nothing. So he really wanted to understand that. And so the documentary is about that exploration. And you're right, it is actually an open question. 
because actually when you watch the documentary, it turns out that people did attempt to do things. Yeah, people did call the police. I remember that. Yeah, and people, um, and many and, and and so really, what ended up happening was it was it was also about the power of who had who could tell the story, because the story came out of the New York Times, and at that time, the New York Times was sacrosanct. So people would never push back on that narrative. But it was really important for that narrative to be told about the city of New York, because then it allowed like resources to be to be put towards certain things because people were painting the picture of New York as a cold town where bad things happen to you without anyone caring. It just had a really tremendous effect. And this is now, this is, this was the only context in which I'd heard his sister's name. And it really was to say something about who we are as people. So it's actually really turns out to be quite fascinating. Chris is extremely right when he said, just go get some therapy, Bill, because his siblings, he has other siblings who are alive and that is their sentiment much of the time. Yeah, just <laughs> let it go. A uh, couple of things. One, she died in 64, not mm-hmm. 70s or 80s. Um, the reason why I thought 80s was that her death and the story of her death is a pivotal plot point in the Alan Moore um, book and movie, The Watchmen. Yeah. which is why it's, I remember it. And uh, it's not the observer effect, which has to do with time bystander. travel. It's the bystander effect. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I mean, it's a really fascinating documentary. It really calls into question a lot of our assumptions. And it also really brings up some of the issues that we've been tackling along, which is storytelling. Who tells the story? What does it mm-hmm. end up telling you about yourself, the way the story gets told? And that's really, really what was crippling for Bill. So um, really great. I'm totally recommend. The man who killed her recently died. I remember when he died. It was like last year. It was fascinating. Um, he yeah, died his recently. Name was Walter Mosley, and it was an African-American man. And that's the other thing that was really interesting, too, is the need to find the person who did this and, you know, the story around him. Now, I actually found his story a little bit. It's intriguing, the the, the person who gets arrested for her murder. And what we now know about cops' interactions or what we publicly acknowledge about cops' interactions with Black people. So when you look at this documentary now and think back on the cops wanting to arrest somebody and who this person turned out to be, it was really, it's fascinating. So there, there are lots of open questions, I think, that was raised by this documentary. None of them were satisfied fully, but that's the power of a good documentary. I yeah, that's the power. The documentary asks questions and then, at the end, it looks right into the camera and just kind of shrugs at you and then fades to black. And you're like, what the fuck was that? But that's a good documentary. Both documentaries did that. So yes, I'm, I'm basically on a documentary tip this week. I highly recommend those two. The Mask You Live In and The Witness. Okay, great. What about you? Um, now it's time I mean, for my recommendation. traveling, so I don't know what you saw. I mean, uh, you know, I know it's like a media recommendation, but it doesn't say like see, hear, or experience. I don't want to say travel because I feel like we're always fucking saying advocating that. travel. Yes, I'm always saying that. And you're not gonna you're not gonna say a dental office like our old colleague. <laughs> I don't go out and see, see my barber. He does a great job. <laughs> so I'm kind of stuck. I'm not certain what I want to recommend that I haven't recommended. I'm in. I'm currently in the middle of reading several articles that are really interesting and several books, but I'm not done with any of them, so I don't want to recommend them. Um, I God, you're slow. I know I am slow, but that's what happens when you're reading six things at a time. Stop. Like I, just, read I need to two. pick one. Yeah, and just drive through because I get <laughs> bored and I pick up one of the other five and I never get back to the first one. I've been reading one. I've been reading that Fran Lee Boyd's article on race and racism for four months. 
You know what? Finish it, and then we. I will. That's a great article. Just finish yeah, I know. It that's, I want to recommend it, but I. I don't know. Did I just recommend it? I think you just did. It's really great. <laughs> Although it's um, taking you four months, I don't know how great it I is. I know. I mean, it's it's great, but no, I. Actually, okay. This is my. This is what I would would recommend. Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. There has been a kerfluffle in Sex in the City land because um, Kim Cattrall has recently decided <laughs> that she was not going to do Sex in the City 3. Hear me out. Hear me out. She did an interview with Piers Morgan talking about Sex in the City and the reason why she said no, etc. I, I don't know why. I ex- This is a media recommendation. It's something you can look up. Piers Morgan, Kim Cattrall, Sex in the City 3. I loved watching her talk about her experience in mm-hmm. saying no. I loved watching her talk about her experience as Samantha and how she had said no a year ago and how, you know, she's now 61 and this isn't part of her sixties and she wishes it all well. She wishes them all well, but she doesn't want to be part of it. She says that, you know, she's done, but maybe Samantha is. She says that maybe Samantha can be African-American or a Latina or something else that she's not going to be part of it. The reason why I enjoyed watching this interview is that one, Kim Cattrall is one poised motherfucker. Like Piers yeah. Morgan was doing his very Piers Morganist to try and get her to be catty or whatever. And she just wasn't having it. And so as part of this package that he was doing, cause he was on a show just talking about how Kim Cattrall has always been speaking out against, against ageism in Hollywood and how that's really been her thing. And then like in the movies that she's been in, they re- she refuses to have them airbrush out her wrinkles, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Kim Cattrall is an interesting figure, but also I would just say watch this interview to see how to be classy. She was really classy about the whole thing. She does call out Sarah Jessica Parker and some of the other girls, but in a way that's not bitchy at all. Just that, you know, we were not friends. We were colleagues. We worked together. I wish they had been nicer about that and about this whole thing. And that's that. Watch that interview. I just, just, have you seen it? No, I haven't, but I'm, I'm about just, to. Just watch it and just, I just want to see what comes up for you. I just, I thought it was a great way in an industry that sort of uses like cattiness and bitchiness, especially when it comes to female leads, mm-hmm. uses that as like an engine to move itself along. I just felt like she short circuited it by being just smart and affable and thoughtful and honest. Or, nice. or maybe not, if not honest, then at least authentic. Fantastic so recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's cool. We'll link it and you you can watch it. And I'm just curious what you think. You don't have to be a Sex in the City fan for it just to just observe the way she handles herself. So, my dear, there it is. There it is. Another it's one been wonderful the- meandering with you today. Yeah, it's very meandering day. Like, after meandering through Europe, I, we meandered through this <laughs> conversation. I'll have to go back. I have to say, I passed through Sweden and Norway. Mm-hmm. And Oslo's airport, it's parts of it look like like a, like a ski chalet. It's great. Like, there's wood... <laughs> There's wood paneling. It just looks like I just want to have a hot cocoa and a hat. I want to go. I want to go back to Oslo just for the airport. Outside looked like an absolute mess because it was snowy and rainy and gross. <laughs> also, redheads really big over there. <laughs> go travel for redheads. I'm just saying. saying, if you're into redheads, it's not just for Ireland anymore. So many redheads <laughs> in that airport. Who knew? Norway, the refuge They're for redheads. Passing. Sounds like it was good to get out of the U.S. for a little bit. Everyone get out of the U.S. <laughs> for a little, if you can, if you can, if you can. It's a fun thing. It's a fun experiment if you can do it. Uh, I, I do want to say I'm going to end on an ominous note. 
Everyone, if you can hear this, if you don't have a passport, get one. It's just a good thing to have. But for now, I will say goodbye. Goodbye.